Last 5% Media. On this podcast, we discuss details of crimes that are often violent in nature. In addition, historical audio and original interviews include outdated language to describe sex workers. Listener discretion is advised. I am here for the 10 women who were raped and strangled between October 13th and November 29th. In memory of our sisters, we fight back! I am here for the women whose lives are limited daily by threat of violence. In memory of our sisters, we fight back! On the morning of December 13, 1977, a motorcade of 60 women followed a hearse to City Hall in downtown Los Angeles. Nine women dressed in black emerged from the hearse. They looked like 19th century mourners. Tall hoods covered their faces. They dressed as mourners, they said, not to demonstrate weakness, but to represent women united in their pain. I am here for the hundreds of women who are portrayed as victims of assault in films, television, and magazines. One woman read a statement. I am here for the rage of all women. I am here for women fighting back. She denounced the highly sensationalized reporting on the Hillside Strangler case, what she called the latest chapter in a long history of sordid media coverage about violence against women. Within hours, the Hillside Strangler would kill again. I'm Joseph Rodota. I first encountered the Hillside Strangler case 30 years ago in my former career as a political opposition researcher. In this podcast, I revisit 10 murders that terrorized Los Angeles in 1977 and 1978 and the longest murder trial in U.S. history. He said, we've got a body, and I think it's the girl you reported missing last night. You've had your mom and dad, so could you imagine not? And that was the beginning of a nightmare. From Last 5% Media, this is Hillside. Chapter 3, A Wild Look. I'm sitting on my bed with the news on, uh, got wet hair, writing the term paper. On the night of December 13th, 1977, the manager of the Climax Nude Modeling Escort Service called psychology student Lois Lee. And she tells me that she sent a girl out to meet a guy, and the girl did not call back, and the guy's not answering his phone now. She gave Lee the address in Hollywood, the phone number the man had used to book the session, and the name of the young woman who had taken the call but hadn't checked in, 17-year-old Kimberly Martin. Lee called the phone company. And I learned at this point, because of my experience at UCLA and with LAPD, not to use the word prostitute. So I told the operator I ran a rape hotline, and a girl had called me from this location. She provided the phone number the caller had used. And I can't find her now. Can she tell me where the phone is? And she said, it's a payphone. 
Lee's next call was to the LAPD. She told the officer that a woman working for an escort service went to meet a man at 1950 Tamarind in Hollywood and hadn't checked back in. She said the man had called from a payphone. An officer said he would send a police car to the address. It was about 7.30 in the morning. It was daylight, and we could see. I don't think we'd even had coffee, i tell you the truth, of that early. On the morning of December 14, 1977, LAPD Detective Sherman Oaks and his partner answered a call. Two newspaper boys had found the body of a young woman in the Elysian Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles. The officers parked on the street and made their way to where the woman lay. So we go down to look at her and I go, oh my God, this is Kimberly Martin. That same morning, Lois Lee called the LAPD about Kimberly Martin, who had failed to check in with her escort service the night before. But the officer Lee spoke with didn't have any new information. So Lee called a contact at the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. He said, we've got a body, and I think it's the girl you reported missing last night. Lee drove to the address in Hollywood where Kimberly had gone to meet a client. And it was a typical big apartment complex. And in Hollywood, people move in and move out. I don't even know if the notions of leases existed in those days. Or let me just say there were buildings that the notions of a lease may not have existed. Some sex workers met customers in those empty apartments. And oftentimes they were managed by couples. And they would rent the empty apartments as what was called a trick pad. So they would get a cash fee in exchange for letting someone use that for sex. Lee went into the lobby. Apartment 114, where Kimberly Martin went the night before, was just down the hall. Cops were everywhere. Someone from the LAPD crime lab photographed the debris scattered in the hallway. A ring of keys, a hairbrush, an empty pill bottle, a yellow ring, two pennies. And about that point, all these LAPD guys come in, one guy with a big cigar blowing smoke in my face, going, who the hell are you? And I'm saying, well, I'm Lois Lee. And uh, learned that in Psych 101, right? Lee figured that whoever lured Kimberly Martin into apartment 114 might have had permission. She pointed to the apartment manager and his wife, who were standing nearby. And I said, but let me tell you something. These people right here, they know who it is that was in that apartment last night. And he didn't believe me. LAPD Deputy Chief Daryl Gates, leader of the Hillside Strangler Task Force, wrote on his yellow notepad, Tamarind Address. Who had that apartment last? Are we looking at all residents of Tamarind, all past residents? LAPD detectives went door to door, asking everyone who lived there if they'd seen or heard anything unusual the night before. The tenant in apartment 113 said he'd heard a woman scream around 10 o'clock from either the far end of the hallway or maybe from the entrance to the lobby. A woman from the other side of the building said she had looked through the sliding glass door of apartment 114 and saw a man and a woman struggling inside. Yet another resident said he'd heard screaming for a couple of seconds and then the sound of people running down the hallways. He told the Los Angeles Times he wasn't about to open his door. I heard screaming and hollering every night. By late afternoon, detectives had worked their way up to the third floor. They questioned a man living in apartment 329. 
He said he'd heard something that sounded like a scream in the distance, a woman's scream, sometime between 8.30 and 9.15. Detectives didn't check the man's driver's license. They thanked him for his time and proceeded down the hall. My name is uh, Mika Mercado. I'm uh, 44 years old, soon to be 45. I don't know. I am a child at heart and a girl just, you know, trying to still find her way in this world, find her happiness, and be me. Mika Mercado lives in Southern California. Her father, Emilio Mercado, was 17 when she was born. Um, I have another photo of my dad holding me when I was little and um, a yearbook picture of his. And that's a, and, I, and I have a cousin of mine gave me a picture of him when he was 14 that he uh, blew up for me. Um, he is in a fighting stance, like doing this. So I have it like blown up on my uh, dresser. He lived in Culver City, California, a town in Los Angeles County. On November 15, 1977, a neighbor shot and killed him. They were best friends. Um, the story that I get that they had a, they had a fight. They say he had started doing drugs like Red Devils and things and whatnot. And he was acting a little like crazy. Years later, Mika's aunt on her father's side told her what happened. Mika's father invited the man to come inside and listen to music. The man said he needed to get some albums, and he'd be right over. He came back with a gun. And then he, uh, he shoots my dad right there in front of uh, my dad's sisters, like right there in our, in our yard. Mika was two and a half years old. To look at the psychology of it all doesn't take, you don't need a degree to kind of see. <laughs> I was collateral damage. I was visiting my mother, and uh, she was getting ready to watch Johnny Carson. So I left, and I traveled the 210 freeway. I get off on Angeles Crest Highway to get to my home. This is Janice Akers. She lived in La Cañada, Flint Ridge, on the western edge of the San Gabriel Valley. And I noticed when I made my turn to get onto the highway... Uh, There was no cars at all. It's residential up there. It was late at night, February 16th, 1978. Akers was on her way home when she saw two sets of headlights in her rearview mirror. And uh, when I looked up in the back behind me, all of a sudden I see two cars coming at a high speed up Anza's Crest Highway. There was two cars a large car and a small car. And they were traveling at high speed. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's not usual. She slowed down and prepared to turn into her neighborhood. And that's when I made my left-hand turn. I kind of slowed down and I looked to my right because that small car had been coming up behind me very fast. And I wanted to see just what kind of a crazy was driving like that. 
Yeah, it was at a high rate of speed. You know, it was so late at night, and this is residential up here. She looked to her right. And I saw the small car and the occupant in it. And that's when I saw him, he saw me. She watched as the two cars sped past her and their taillights disappeared into the night. My name is Wanda Huff, and I was one of Cindy Hudspeth's best friends, and we were very close. Cindy Lee Hudspeth was a psychology student at Glendale Community College. She was about five foot four inches tall with green eyes and reddish blonde hair that she wore like Farrah Fawcett Majors. And I was like a big sister to her. I was probably about 20, almost 26 at the time because my birthday was at the end of February. Wanda later described her friend Cindy as someone who had a good figure and was always on a diet, drinking grapefruit juice. She dressed well, but never provocatively. She was really involved in dancing, and she wanted to start teaching dancing because she was very good. The two women met when they both worked as waitresses at the Red Vest restaurant in Glendale. After work, they'd go out on the town. And we would go to different clubs where they had uh, dance contests. And a lot of times I judged the contest, but she would get in them. And she was really into the dancing, and it was back during the disco days, and it was a big thing. Cindy took classes and worked two part-time jobs in the college's continuing education office and at a branch of Allstate Savings and Loan. A former boyfriend later told the Los Angeles Times that Cindy never drank or smoked. A neighbor said Cindy was an active member of her church, volunteering in the church's daycare center on Sundays and working as a camp counselor in the summer. Cindy wasn't the type to go home with somebody. We were very aware of what was going on with this hillside strangling thing, and we went together, you know, uh, like I would make sure that I would drop her off and she got in safely. There was there were several girls that we were friends with. They were usually younger. And I made sure that they all knew if anything happened, if they were followed by somebody, you know, to be sure to go to the police department. And that way, more than likely, the person wouldn't be following them. But I made sure that they knew where the police department was and everything. So it wasn't like we were totally stupid and didn't know what was happening. Around 4.30 in the afternoon of Thursday, February 16th, 1978, Cindy dropped off the rent check for the small apartment she shared with a roommate at 800 East Garfield Avenue in Glendale. Cindy had just finished her shift at the Savings and Loan office and had a little bit of time before starting work that night at the Continuing Education Center. Cindy never made it to that second job. I think the hardest thing for me is that whole thing, like the first victim, you know, the black girl, the prostitute, those three things being highlighted about who she was. When that's not who she was, those are labels that don't mean anything. This is Mika Mercado. Her mother, Yolanda Washington, was the Hillside Strangler's first victim. Forty years after someone took her mother's life, Mika searched online for information about the case. She found articles from the LA Times and other California newspapers. She also came across online videos. They were hard to watch. Maybe it was like self-torture on myself, you know. It was painful to see black and white photographs of her mother and the other victims. 
the same photos a jury saw in a courtroom every day during the Strangler trial. It was also tough for Mika to watch old television news reports and see the faces of the men who committed these brutal crimes. And then you go and look in the comments and you hear people say like, oh, I really like these guys or these guys are cool. That and other comments people posted online infuriated her. I remember seeing one clip where a guy had posted he was pen pals with them and he was bragging about how he got a letter back from him. And, and I'm just like, this is crazy. you know. And I she knew she should just let that go. And it's easy to be a bully when you're behind a keyboard. So you'll say all kinds of like horrible things, you know. And you know how people are. If it's not them in their situation, it's very rarely you're going to find anybody that's going to, like, sympathize with you or really care or really put themselves in, you know, in your position as to, you know, how you feel. But she couldn't. Against her better judgment, she commented about why she thought these killers didn't deserve a fan club. And I remember actually lashing out, like at these people, which was like the worst thing in the world you could do, <laughs> that you can do because then you open yourself up. People aren't very kind. And I had people like say, oh, so what? This is public knowledge. So what? Telling me I need to get help because I'm upset, you know? And then I'd have to like collect myself. Like I'm sitting here arguing with people that I can't see that aren't in my face. The books Mika read about the case and the documentaries she watched shared a common flaw. Because it's always like the same thing. Every book that's written or documentary is written, it's always from a perspective of like goes into the serial killer's childhood, what they went through. Oh gosh, they went through this and he didn't have a chance and look what happened to him. The writers and directors, she felt, got it wrong. They're so irritating just so irritating. They glaze over that so much. In Los Angeles, a killer the police are calling the Hillside Strangler has murdered 10 young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highways. Here's Bill Sternoff in Los Angeles. The body had been dumped 15 feet down an embankment in a residential neighborhood. When we finally get when we get Cindy Hutsmith case, obviously task force is full-blown going, media's out of control, and, uh, you know, everybody's running which way. This is Frank Salerno, the former detective with the L.A. County Sheriff's Office. He and his partner had spent the past five months investigating the murder of Judy Miller. And we get called at lunch and said a team had rolled up to Angela's Crest to handle a car over the cliff with a body in the trunk, and they think you should get, you should go up there, and uh, they say uh, they think it's part of your case. I said, okay, we'll be right there. Around 10 a.m. that day, a Los Angeles County Fire Department helicopter spotted a car in a ravine about four and a half miles into the Angeles National Forest. A sheriff's search and rescue team went to the location. The car, an orange Datsun, had rolled about 50 feet down an embankment before coming to rest against a log. A rescue worker reached the car. He noticed that one of the taillights had been torn away during the plunge, leaving a hole. 
he looked in and saw the nude body of a woman. The rescue team removed the woman from the trunk, placed her in a body bag, and used a cable to lift her out of the ravine. Detective Salerno arrived at the scene. They've got the, the Datsun up. It's, it's sitting in the turnout. And um, we look. You can see ligature marks even as you look into the trunk of what you could see. When, once we got her out, she was nude. She had the classic, you know, five-point restraints. And uh, there was no doubt she was another victim. My apartment was located right next to the Red Vest restaurant, which is the place where we met because we were both waitresses there. Wanda Huff was a few minutes late for her shift that night at the Red Vest Inn in Glendale. A co-worker took her aside as soon as she arrived. And she said, you need to talk to Patty. So I went to Patty and go, what's the big deal? I'm five minutes late. Come on, you know. So she said, no, come here, come here. And she took me into the employee's bathroom and she told me that they found out that Cindy had been killed. And so I immediately ran out of the restaurant and ran over to my apartment. And when I was walked up the stairs, I had a roommate at the time and she had the TV on it. And they showed Cindy's picture and they showed her car being pulled up from the, you know, the cliff where they had pushed over at Los Angeles Crest. And that was the beginning of the nightmare. And then the next day or two, I heard about this, you know, finding Cindy Hudson's car, her and her car. Janice Akers saw the news reports as well. She thought Cindy's orange Datsun looked like the smaller car she saw the night before. She called the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. They called up and asked if they could come by. And I says, well, I guess so. So they came. There's two of them. And uh, I told them what I saw. And they asked if I would be willing to make a uh, composite picture. She described the man she saw that night as the police sketch artist followed along. You know, what shape was the face, you know? And then I'd say, no, no, you know, he was a little thinner faced. She said the driver had bushy hair, thick eyebrows, a beard, and a mustache but the sketch artist couldn't capture something she remembered about the man. And he had a wild look on his eyes. On a Saturday morning, 1 December, Mika Mercado sent Lois Lee an email. Hello, Miss Lee. My mother was Yolanda Washington. She was a victim of the Hillside Stranglers. I believe you tried to help my mother before she was killed. I don't know much about her besides what's been said in the media. I'm trying to find out more about her, and it's been hard, but then I found an article with her name in it, and it stated you tried to help her. I know you're a busy woman, but if you get this and you can spare the time, I would appreciate an opportunity to communicate with you. Hope all is well. Thank you. It was December 28th, 2019, just a few days after Christmas. That's Lois Lee. She said this wasn't the first email like this she'd gotten. I'm never surprised to hear from the children of the women I've helped or the women who have suffered really tough lives. Lee understood why Mika was reaching out. And um, because of the stigma attached to prostitution, people are not telling her the truth. 
I really thought that she was entitled to have straightforward, honest answers about her mother. The more people lie to her, then the more her imagination and negative thoughts come into her mind and questions about who she is. An hour later, Lee wrote back. Hi, Mika. I knew your mother. She was a beautiful young woman. Did you see the beautiful photos of her in the newspaper? Lee explained she tried to help Yolanda after her arrest. She'd been arrested for prostitution, and I tried to help her in court. We were allowed to talk, and she promised to call me when she got out of jail. Yolanda never called. Your mom was loved by many. Blessings, Lois. It just opened up this whole another chapter for me, like, wow. A lot of mixed emotions, a lot of feelings, because I felt like, how is a stranger, like, giving me information and answers and telling me things that I couldn't get, you know, from my own family? For the first time, someone was telling Mika the truth about her mother. Someone who actually had good things to say about my mom and who wanted to help her, and her, you know, being so young and having to have... I'm sorry. You know, gone through those things. Mika replied to Lee later that day. I just want to thank you for being there for her, she wrote, and trying to help her when her own family turned their backs. And it just, like, hearing that, I was just the first thought in my mind was, like, you know, like, I didn't understand, like, and it just instantly just put my mind in to the heartache for my mom because she was so young. Mika wasn't done with her search. It just made me like, you know, like I need to to know more. The biggest thing learned from this and learned by looking at other serial cases is generally, in so many cases, the suspect's name has been called in. He is one of the clues, okay? His name is there, uh, and it was either overlooked or, you know, not properly followed up on or whatever. And, and it's, a, it's a management problem. It really is. From the start, Sheriff's Detective Frank Salerno had concerns about LAPD's management of the investigation. He thought that department had too many detectives working on the case. The size of the task force was another thing in that you had people working it that weren't familiar with the key things they should be familiar with. They came from all over. Gates staffed the task force with detectives from stations scattered all over Los Angeles. Salerno figured that was a mistake. An administrator, a chief of detectives, or whoever reaches out and tells 26 or 30 stations, you're going to send me two or three or five detectives. You know, they don't necessarily, <laughs> if I'm the captain of the station, I ain't going to send you my five best guys. Okay, because I got my station I got to answer for. <laughs> Salerno also found the morning meetings at LAPD headquarters mostly useless. The way my partner and I looked at it was, 
we're not going to accomplish anything by every morning sitting here and listening to what came in last night, what, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, we had leads to follow up. Deputy Chief Gates regularly briefed the press about the latest developments in the investigation. LA News Radio reporter Jim Mitchell considered those sessions a waste of time. It's pretty much a free-for-all. It was tough getting questions in, you know, because the room was really crowded, <laughs> you know. It's usually the police commission room is where these were held. And then a couple of them, they had to move over to the auditorium. I went to them. They usually begin with uh, a rough description of where the cases were, you know, where the investigation was, which really wasn't too terribly informative. At LAPD headquarters, Deputy Chief Gates met with state lawmakers about the status of the investigation. In a meeting closed to the public, Gates briefed the chairman of the Senate Subcommittee on Violent Crime. Gates said forensic technicians had recovered several fingerprints from the payphone in the public library in Hollywood, from which a man had arranged to meet Kimberly Martin. But there was no system anywhere in California that could provide a fast search of individual fingerprints. To check just one print manually, a detective would need to sort through up to 15 million records stored in 65 file cabinets. The chairman said he understood and would find money to create a statewide fingerprint computer system, but it would be nearly a decade before such a system was in place. Uh, there was still the task force in place for quite a while. Uh, they had a ton of call-ins they were going through. We were going through the few that much less than they had. Um, and everything, nothing was coming together. In March, Chief Ed Davis retired and Daryl Gates became LAPD chief of police. A few weeks into his new role, Gates announced a major breakthrough in two of the murders. But their informant was wrong, so the police let the suspect go. Uh, we followed a bunch of people. We had surveillances going. Uh, we even surveilled one of our own personnel uh, that was working one of the stations uh, for quite some time because a hooker had called in and said she thought he was he was it. And, and we followed him for a week and called him in, put him on a poly, took his blood type and, and all that. And, and eliminated him as being a suspect. At the peak of its investigation, the Hillside Strangler Task Force fielded as many as 150 clues a day. By late May, that had dwindled to just a handful. There was no suspect, so things sort of petered out. As the investigation stalled, the LAPD began reassigning task force officers to other cases. We just want to use our resources where they're most productive, Gates told reporters. There is a show called, um, PBS does one now that's similar to it, but this one was uh, called To Know know Who You Are or something, something to that effect, but it was with uh, actors and actresses famous people that they would do it with. Mika Mercado is drawn to television shows about people who find lost relatives. 
It was um, one in particular, I forget the actress name, and they did her uh, family tree and she had found out so much about her history and how she had like an aunt that was um, actually like in rehab, was an addict. Then her relative was like a drug dealer and how she had been in, had went to a rehab, had spent a time in jail. Even when there are troubled twists in a family's history, Mika believes it's worth seeking out. Just all these things that she found out about what had happened in, um, in her family, and um, it just had opened up a whole nother world for her. Mika was two and a half years old when her parents died. You would think, like a lot of people assume, because I was so young that it shouldn't affect me. It bothers me that people think like that, and it really is interesting to me that people think like that, because I had someone close to me that said that, and I had said, instead of getting angry at them, I just kind of threw a question back at them and said, well, you've had your mom and dad, so could you imagine not? You know, I was like, you know who you look like, you know who you act like, you know what they smell like. I said, things that you take for granted. I said, I, I had told that person, you know, that's why I get mad at you when you get into arguments with your parents and you hold grudges over stupid shit. Excuse my language. I wish that my parents were drug addicts or bums on the street because at least I could go to where they are and they'd always have the possibility of changing. As I started this podcast, my researchers and I reviewed every news article, police report, book, courtroom document, anything about the case. We made a list of anyone connected to each of these women. The list is nearly 500 names long. Investigators, witnesses, neighbors, classmates, employers, relatives. I think about all of the girls who are victims of the Hillside Stranglers years have gone past, but yes, Yolanda, because she was the first victim and I knew her. On a Saturday morning, Dr. Lois Lee answered an email from Mika Mercado asking for information about her mother. Hi, Mika. Yes, we will help you. I knew your mother. That same morning, I was at home in Northern California. A message came in on my iPhone, and I picked it up. It was an email from Lois Lee. I have copied Joe Redota on this email. He is producing the pod series, including your mom, and he has done a lot of research on her life. He will help you, and you can trust him. I looked at the CC and recognized the other name right away. Yolanda Washington's daughter, Mika Mercado. Hillside is a production of Last 5% Media. This podcast was created, written, and hosted by me, Joseph Rodota. Our executive producers are Chris George and Joaquin Alvarado. Caitlin Bruce is our producer. Adam Melian is our research director. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Julie Checkaway and Robert Saladay served as consulting producers. 
Our sound engineers are Jeremy Dalmas and Craig Thomas. Craig is also our composer. Edgar Guetta designed our logo and website. Special thanks to the Center for Inquiry Libraries in Buffalo, New York, the Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford University, the Mainsfield Library at the University of Montana, and the Warnicke Ranch Artist Residency. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information about this episode, visit our website, hillsidepodcast.com. And thanks for listening.